0: Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. In this podcast, Sheree Phelps interviews Dr. Finlayson Fife about how parents can support their children as their children navigate their sexual identity. If you've enjoyed these podcasts and they've been helpful to you, we ask that you please rate and leave a review so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Finlayson Fife's podcast archive. Thank you so much. We're so glad that you're here and have a great week. I was reading Maya Angelou her
1: in her memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She kind of shares her personal experience when she was 16. Mm-hmm. and she had read a book and after and I don't remember the title of the book but after reading the book she thought she thought oh well i want she was wondering if she was a lesbian mm-hmm. and partly some of the reasons in her own words why she was curious about that was more her physical structure of her body she mm-hmm. she talks about being like flat chest and having big hands and big feet and her voice was a little bit lower and so first of all just her going off her physical features made her th- question and wonder whether or not she was a lesbian Mm -hmm. so she she went to her mom and talked to her mom and asked her basically said mom am i a lesbian her mom told her no you're not Mm -hmm. and for a time that that was enough until later on she she talks about an experience where she was with a friend of hers and they were changing and she saw her friend's breast Mm -hmm. and she wasn't really able to, I mean, she, she got older. She identified that she was probably feeling a little envious and just saw it as something beautiful, mm-hmm. but when she was 16 and saw her friend's breast and was having these emotions, she was confused. And then that further made her think, you know, well, maybe I am a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And so her mm-hmm. plan with that was to figure out whether or not she, if she was or wasn't, was to mm-hmm. have a boyfriend, go find a boyfriend and have sex with them. And somehow, somehow, through having sex, she would know.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so
1: I I really appreciate her story, because I think it illustrates that...
2: Yeah, the complexity.
1: Yes. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if you would talk about a little bit of, for an adolescent, why that can be so complex, because I think there's probably multiple factors into what might be influencing their thinking around their
2: sexual identity. Well, I think, first of all, adolescence is such a formative period around defining a self because up until adolescence, you've been mostly living within a world in which your reflected sense of self is uh, the operating reality. That is, you're kind of being defined by others and you're within that um, parental child structure to help get you physically to a point where you start to hit puberty and puberty is a period of the beginning of a young adulthood that is your, and so it's self definitional. And it's, I remember people saying when I was an adolescent, you know, just be, just be true to who you are. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I (laughs) I have no idea what that even means or how to even begin to understand who I am. and. This is when parents become less important and peers become very important, for better or for worse, for starting to try on different identities, try on different realities, experiment with different ways of thinking, being, and choosing. Of course, it's very hard when you're the parent because as necessary as this process is for starting to get a sense of self for the child, it's also a somewhat dangerous time because the child often doesn't know what they don't yet know and they're highly influenced by other immature people, i.e. their peers. So it's a highly impressionable and vulnerable period, albeit a necessary one. And so, you know, I think that when I was growing up and in high school in the 80s, you know, there there was no upside to being gay. There was a classmate that I had that I was quite certain was gay and he was teased mercilessly, he was, you know, it breaks my heart to think about what he must have gone through because the the assumption was clearly heteronormative. I mean, it was clearly that to not be heterosexual was aberrant, so there was no um, room almost. Like if you were gay, you yeah. knew it, and it was a desperate and terrible secret, I'm sure for most people growing up during that period. I think we're in a different period now where there's a lot more focus culturally on identity, on sexuality, on um, trying to find justice for people who have been oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot more conversation, uh, open discussion about sexuality, sexual orientation, sexual identity. There's there's just so much more room for it to even be considered. And I think it's it's um, a way to demonstrate, to be able to be conversant on these things, to be not simple minded about these things. It's kind of a way of demonstrating that you're cool, you know, that you're no, paying no. attention and so on. So it's a different environment in which to be asking those questions. And so I think it's it's challenging for adolescents and parents to sort out you know is this just that my child's trying on an idea because it's 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 in the air it's in the conversation and they're and they're being unduly influenced or is this who my child really is you know i know when i was i remember two stories for me which i remember i was uh babysitting one afternoon i was maybe 15 years old i put the child to bed and i was watching a show on pbs And for some reason, the documentary or show was on child molesters. So I'm watching that and, you know, I'm only 15, but I was just like, like, do you could I ever, you know, because I changed the diaper of this baby. Like suddenly the idea got introduced to me and I had no self-knowledge sufficient to just like unequivocally refute it. It wasn't that I'd had some attraction to a child. It was that the idea got introduced. And so I had to like filter it through my brain and think about like, could I be? Maybe now that I've thought of it, maybe now I will feel attracted when that baby wakes up, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I mean I just sort of you know, and I did the same thing around being a lesbian, like it was just sort of like, "Oh my gosh, like maybe I am. Maybe that's true about me. Maybe that's why I've been slow to want to go out with boys." Yeah. Um, you know, it, I just didn't have enough self-knowledge to know the answer to that yet, which is completely normal. It's uh it's a part of sorting out who you are. I think if we think, you know, that having the thought itself means that is the answer, well, I think then we do ourselves and do our children a disservice. So, you know, people have time to figure out who they are around on many, like the person I would have married at 20 is very different than the person I married at 29. That is to say, I was sorting out more about who I was and what i really wanted in life and maturing and that's a process that's necessary and valuable and locking yourself into anything prematurely is probably not wise yeah
1: you know and i think understanding that as a parent understanding that that process that the adolescent that your child is going through i think can do can play a huge role in calming your anxieties around
2: mm-hmm.
1: around that um, but what else mm-hmm. might you, uh, like advice you would have for parents to, you know, calm themselves around that as their child's trying to identify their sexual identity and, and how, what role can parents play in that process as a child is trying to, you know, come to understand themselves, like where,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what role do they play and maybe don't they play?
2: I think, um, parents can play, um, a very important role um in in a in one way that's coming to mind, which is, at least this is how I think. Um parents have to figure out what they're comfortable with. But I think my message to my child, if if I thought, you know, he was or she was grappling with these questions, is I want you to know that I will love and choose you um whoever you become, you know, and that you being true to yourself true to the best in you is what i stand up for because that's how your life will be free and how your life will be uh joyful so what that looks like whatever career you choose how, whom you marry like how what sexual identity you may define yourself within the, my only hope for you is that you are honest and thoughtful with yourself um and you can count on my love and investment in you. So like just taking off the table that the question of acceptance is in any way linked to them being their honest selves in the world, yeah. their honest best selves. Um, I think I would also, if I thought, if I thought, yeah, this fits, okay, this is who my child is. And I think that they are knowing it. Yeah. I would just settle in and stay open to thinking through it with them and helping them decide how they respond to this part of themselves or helping them think through it if I if I genuinely felt like and it wasn't about oh my gosh like how am I going to handle having a child who's gay or lesbian or whatever the you know yeah. that that if I, if it's not coming from your own anxieties and you think, I think this is a peer pressure thing or I think it may not really be who my child is, I think I would articulate to them, you know, you have time to sort this out but it's also an environment in which a lot of kids are trying on identities and experimenting with identities and that may be what this is about for you which is okay. It's okay yeah. if you're trying to sort through it. But like giving them some context that they may not be able to see. Yeah. For example, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, there, you know, the, there was a way of rebelling that, you know, you wore dog collars and spiked your hair. <laughs> it's kind of weird. But there was plenty of people in my high school that would go through a phase of kind of rebellious identity, like they're taking yeah. on a particular identity. You, you know, it's again, it's a part of adolescence the best thing you can do for your child is not give them something that they need to rebel against that then makes self betray by claiming an identity to get back at you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it, you want anything mm-hmm. that they claim to really be coming from their honesty and not peer pressure or pressure from you. You want it to be about them really leaning into what they know about themselves and expressing who they are, the gift of who they are in the most ethical and thoughtful way. Yeah.
1: Right. Rather than claiming it out of anger towards their parents.
2: Right. Or what not. Exactly. When you're trying to control your child, you'll get a child who might comply with you or defy you, but you undermine their agency. And so you have to, being a parent and especially being a parent of an adolescent or a young adult is really pushes on the question of what does it mean to love another person who has agency who may see the world differently than me you know and am i pressuring an agenda of my own that reinforces me or am i really loving this child this expression of godliness this particular person who may engage in the world or think differently or be a very different person than I am. And that, that's, you know, that pushes our capacity, the question of our capacity to love. Yeah.
1: I want to look at it, um, at first from the parent whose, whose views, um, are that it's not right to get, to engage in a gay relationship. Mm -hmm. How does a parent move forward with, empathy where they're feeling like they don't want to endorse or condone the behavior, but they want to show empathy and love towards their child. It feels like those, those boundaries can be really hard to, to see like, where's empathy and where is endorsing? Um,
2: Well, I, I don't know if it's a parent's. well, maybe I'll start in a different place. Okay. I mean, I think you have to think about why do I hold the position I do? Because most people who hold that position have come by it from a kind of borrowed frame of this is how things should be. Mm -hmm. And so they're trusting in that frame and they're using it as at least a starting point, and then they're saying my child's behavior or choices or even who my child is, is challenging that frame. Yeah. So you want to be careful as a parent that you don't just come in with your orthodoxy at the cost of knowing and understanding your child. I think that's a failure to um, live up to your responsibility, what you promised God you would do, that this is a gift from God to you, your child. And so you owe them, at a minimum, a willingness to know what you don't yet know and understand what you don't yet understand, who your child is, how they experience the world, how they experience themselves. If, you know, what it's like for your child to be making sense of their experience and who they are, because if you're coming in with an agenda, judgment, and a desire to pressure them in a a predetermined path, you're making your worldview and your self-reinforcement and your predetermined, your your self-righteous position, because it's not Mm -hmm. been tested by love yet. You're making that a priority over the responsibility to know, love, and help your child. Now, if you were to come to the decision, this is not right for my child because you know them, you've settled mm-hmm. down enough to care about them, to see what they're doing. It's coming out of standing up for the child, your position. Yeah. That's different because, you know, that your child may not like the position, but they know in their heart of hearts that you are standing for that position because you love them and you want them to thrive. For example, if you had a child who was using substances and you could and you could see what they were going through and let's say they were managing you know depression or something and they were using alcohol to manage that and you you weren't just in simple judgment and just, you know, throwing down um, punishments, but really tracking what was happening for this child. And you were to say, no, you know, you can't go out. You can't do this because you're harming yourself. And I Mm -hmm. cannot stand by and watch you do it. And here's three ways we can help you, whatever. Like that's, the child may not like that the parents are holding a position, but they know in their body that this is about a parent helping a child get a hold of themselves. Yeah. And that's different and the and the child may like not like it. But they know that the parents on their side. And that's extremely important because that is about love. So you just want to make sure you don't let your ideology precede love. That's Christ taught against that. Love leads the way into wisdom. Love leads the way into Um, knowing and understanding what is true. And love is always the highest law. Uh, Everything proceeds from that. So I'm not here to say what is right for each child or for what position for each parent to take, but you don't want your arrogance or your self-reinforcement to run that interaction. So as parents are maybe trying to figure out appropriate
1: boundaries, I think then maybe as parents, we need to check to make sure that it's love. That's kind of running the show and not maybe our orthodoxy in the sense that we're not so close minded. And I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but, and I feel like those sometimes parents fear that if they, <laughs> and I don't know how to articulate this, but if they let love lead the show, then, then, you know, all the guideposts will just fall away.
2: Mm. Yeah, I can see why people are afraid of that. And and I want to be clear that I don't see love as put no constraints on your child or ask nothing of them or whatever they say, go with it. Or if they claim they're a victim, you have, you know, lost your ability to begin a conversation with them. That That is, you know, one of the kind of cultural things that we can do, or it's not just cultural. Currently, people have always done this is if you can use the idea that you're a victim, you can basically get people to back off and you can get a privileged position in the conversation. And so there's this doesn't mean that just whatever your child is saying, um, you need to just yield to. It's staying in an honest conversation because the truth resides within it. What is the, the thing that's love is is what actually is gonna help my child thrive, live a moral, thoughtful life, not be impulsive, indulgent, um, not live life as a victim, but in a kind of thoughtful, anchored, powerful way. What is my role in facilitating that in them? What is their role? That's always the bummer question (laughs) because whether or not they take up their role is on them, not on you. Yeah. Um, But you see like love is, is sometimes about setting limits. Love is sometimes about saying no to things, but you just want to make sure you really, it's really coming about standing up for the best for the child, not about using your control or power as a parent to keep your, ideas dominant. Yeah. Um, I want to
1: look at it now, maybe from the, from the parents perspective, who, who is more comfortable with their child um, in a gay relationship, but now struggling with the relationship with the church specifically, Mm -hmm. what, what advice would you give to a parent in, in that
2: kind of situation with that struggle? Well, I would validate the complexity of that struggle and sorting out what the right thing is. Um, because there's a lot of value in the church, there's a lot of value in the discipline of it, in the community of it, in the um, in the practices that can facilitate our spiritual progress and our thoughtfulness and our anchoring into the divine and into the best in ourselves. So that is highly valuable. And however, it's also sorting out like, what is it? What? I would say it's a a very important open question. Mm -hmm. How, what is right for me? And it's, and what is right for my child? And what does my child think is right for him or her? And it's not always the same answer for everyone. That's for sure. You can have people who choose, you know, like, um, Thomas Christopherson, I think I'm saying his first name, Tom, uh, yeah. you know, he chose a more complex path leaving for a period coming back in a thoughtful way that was an expression of his integrity, you know, and that was right for him. And there are other people who say it's too much. I can't stay. And there isn't a, I don't think it's fair to make a simple answer for anyone out of that kind of question because there's losses on both sides. But I do think that is very much a part of life, you know, to live. One of the things that's both a gift and a real challenge of being um, of being different than your community validates. OK, and there's a lot of ways for that to happen. But being gay or lesbian or bisexual, those are those are very challenging within an LDS community because you're getting the message clearly that Okay, you may be born this way, but there's not really a legitimate path for you except for to sacrifice your sexuality and your ability to really be in a partnership and that's a it's a big ask. I mean, it's a very big ask and and there's also even though we do say you know it's it's not a choice, and uh, we will acknowledge that it's not a choice to be you know gay or lesbian or bisexual that Um, there's still a lot of shaming of it, or I would say it's certainly not, it's considered a liability, right? It's considered something is wrong with you. It's not like you can hold a similar status to the rest of the group and kind of how the group generally would relate to you. So there's an enormous, how to say, you don't get the benefit of validation. You don't get the the pleasure of it, of being able to be who you are and fit within the group well. Mm-hmm. And some people really get that. You know, some people are just, um, I remember thinking this when I was in freshman at BYU, like there were women, freshmen, women who had earnest testimonies, who knew how to bake, who had blonde, fluffy hair. <laughs> and I knew, <laughs> I knew that they had the something I didn't have, you know, I, I mean that, that was, I kind of didn't fit the ideal and the amount of attention I got fit that. (laughs) And so, you know, (laughs) I remember kind of feeling the invalidation of who I was and that's a loss. That's not easy. The gift in it is it's at least the potential for you to start realizing I'm not going to get that validation. Um, that's painful. But it pressures you in the direction of of being in a deeper relationship, hopefully. Hopefully you don't just go find another group that validates you, but then hijacks your development. I mean, it's always good to find groups that you can feel normal within and feel a sense of being known within, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But if you use validate, it's a chance to not have validation be your God and instead to define who you are, to claim who you are to have the courage to live more honestly, because that's really where you find the muscles of your own spiritual development. And that's what you need to either be in the church peacefully or leave it peacefully. Um, that's the muscle you need is to know that you are living in an earnest, honest way and choosing deliberately about who you're going to be in the face of your uh the constraints on your choices mm-hmm. and just knowing that you haven't made those choices reactively or out of anger or out of impulsivity but out of honesty and pushing for um yourself to really claim your life you know listening i
1: to explain it in that way um for an adolescent to be going through, I mean, first of all, trying to identify their their sexual identity, I mean, that in and of itself, I think is a challenge, but then within, particularly within the LDS culture, there's that whole other set of challenge that I don't know. I don't know that adolescents are equipped with the capacity to mm-hmm. manage all of that on their own. And it just kind of illustrates how maybe vital it is for parents to be in a position to, to really embrace, to really embrace love and calm their anxiety so that they can be, you know, that support system.
2: Yes. in that whole process. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember my husband said to me, we had some friends whose um, son was gay and they ended up leaving the church. Um, actually a little bit before he came out, they had left. And we had, uh, met up with them again, and we we're talking to them. I remember my husband saying to me afterwards, and this isn't really like my husband to say this. That is, he's never said to me something like "I don't want to go to church" or something like that. Mm-hmm. He just said, "If I thought one of our children were gay or lesbian, I that is probably the one thing that would make me really question if I should be going to church or at least taking them there, mm-hmm. because I think what he was saying was that." the messaging could be so damaging. Um that that you in this quiet way that you are unaware of they're being they're getting the message that they're wrong, that there's something strange about them. And, you know, what adolescent doesn't on some level believe there's something weird and strange about the (laughs) plane? I mean, probably 95% of us were certain that was absolutely true. But if if you're also getting the message that, you know, your fundamental inclination, your attractions are corrupt or somehow broken, I think that can really wreak havoc on the emerging sense of self of a young child, of an adolescent yeah so I think you it's just being really aware as parents, as aware as you can be, um, and thoughtful about kind of how you are in those conversations with your kids, that they know there's room to talk to you or to show you something about who they are if they need to, especially around sexuality, the kind of thing you can do for your child. I mean, I have a course, How Do You Talk to Your LDS Kids About Sex course. But one of the things I talk about is that, you know, parents and kids and sexuality generally don't mix. I mean, and for good reason. So it's uncomfortable for parents and kids to be having conversations about sexuality. There's a kind of a a clear line that both parents and kids want. On the other hand, we live in a culture that's so um sexually open there's such open conversations and meanings that are happening that you don't really have a choice as a parent anymore well everybody has a choice obviously but right. you know but, but if you're going to really help your child you need to be a fundamental part of that conversation and so doing that in a thoughtful way but one of the most important things you can do beyond kind of what the messages are that you're giving your child is demonstrating to your child that you can handle their co- these conversations. You can handle knowing them, that you are an actual resource. And, you know, my kids, I think, knew that about me and they would be sometimes embarrassed to have the questions they had, yeah. but they knew that I could handle it and they knew that I was going to be a good source of information for them. And so they would hear things at school or hear ideas and they would, you know, come and reluctantly but you know still ask me yeah can you help me understand this or what does this mean or why is this person doing that do you think and and that's just a way of teaching them that they don't have to that you really are a resource for their well-being and for them navigating this complex and confusing world of adolescent sexuality yeah um I switch gears just a little bit. What about
1: adults um, who are married and have families and now maybe they're in a position where they're kind of questioning their sexual identity? Do you see that in your practice, adults struggling mm-hmm. with their sexual identity like yes. like later on in their
2: life? Yes, and- for sure. I mean, at least in the, in the people that I've worked with, it's been something that they have pushed down for a long time, you know, and have hoped they could pray away or sacrifice away um, that they saw no, you know, for a period of time, people were being encouraged to get married, even if they were gay, that that would, you know, hopefully solve it or contain it. And so there's people that I think are feeling, you know, stuck or conflicted in trying to figure out very hard choices. Um, so I, I, I definitely see that. Um, I think I lost what your question was though. Um, well, how, as a therapist,
1: how, how would you help an adult struggling with their, I guess their sexual orientation? And I know that could be a whole podcast, but. Sure.
2: Well, I think the short answer is, is, it's, it's, there's value in just allowing it to be knowable or nameable, Mm -hmm. um, to give it a space where it can be recognized and looked at. And, um, what I think is a very typical thing is people have pushed it down so much, felt a lot of shame, done a lot of hiding, yeah. And then sometimes when they dare to open the door, it feels almost deterministic like that means I the marriage is broken, the marriage is over, there's no way to make it work. Um and I my goal usually is just to help people to slow that process down enough to start to have more honest conversations with themselves with one another. Um and do the very hard work of asserting choices within what feels like lose-lose dilemmas. And I don't envy any of these people, the the person who's struggling around, you know, if they want to stay or go, the person who questions whether or not she or he has ever been desired, whether or not you know th- their spouse is going to walk out on everything they've created over time. These are very hard conversations and hard realities. And, um, you know, I have worked with people who have chosen to end the marriage and go. And I think done that out of something clear and honest inside of them, And I've worked with people who have really considered going, really gave that option space and time and chose to stay. And I think it's in the choosing that you find the most peace. If that choice is coming from a place, of I can't handle the invalidation of it, I can't handle people knowing or seeing me in a way I don't want to be seen, then it just feels like a prison. If it's that of my losses, of my difficult choices, this is the one I can back up best or feel most at peace with. I think that's the best chance at living well and finding joy in your life is you can say, this is the challenging path that at least I know I can choose.
1: Yeah. You know, that's one thing that theme that I've noticed uh, throughout kind of your your teachings is this idea that it's not so much the choice that matters, but how, how we're choosing yeah. that or what's driving that
2: choice. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And the more it's coming from a place of honesty and responsibility and you claiming the human being you want to be, the legacy you really want to leave behind you, right? The That it's really coming from a self-defining, honest place, the more solid and loving it is. That it's offering a place of peace for yourself, but also for the people around you. Yeah. The more it's in a compliance defiance frame, which is more about managing how others see you or rebelling against the pressure you feel from others, the more it's it's validation-based, and the more entrapping it is.
1: Yeah. You've talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview, this idea of how genuine love for someone or for others can expand our capacity to come to understand truth. Can mm-hmm. you kind of talk about that idea a little bit? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I, you know, I really see it as we're all living lives that make sense to us based on our experience of the world, of ourselves, of relationships. And so we've come to our positions honestly, but they're inherently limited positions. And if we take the fact that it's worked for us, okay, or that our particular perspective has, you know, been no problem on our side or whatever, with a- and that to keep that view intact you have to dismiss another person out of hand that you have to not know their perspective or way of thinking to keep yours intact well it's an act of fear it's an act of self-service it's not loving okay the one of the great virtues of love is that it actually expands your understanding of truth you are better for it because you've revised your map to account for more reality so if you think about the, the, um, I don't, I should really find the source of this metaphor. I think it's an Eastern Asian, um, but the idea of everybody's touching some part of the elephant. Oh yeah. And, you know, I think that's a very wise idea. I may well know what this, you know, you know, left lower knee, you know, f- feels like, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I right. don't know, you know, what do I know about the tusk? What do I know about the trunk? What are you know? What is it that I don't yet know? That's what humility is. Like I'm willing to tolerate the discomfort of expanding my map by really knowing your experience. And I don't have to, I mean, one of the things I think we're afraid of is if we open up to someone else's experience, our idea or view will just become obliterated or that we'll have to just buy into their view. And I think that's too fear-based. To be humble is to be courageous. That is, I'm willing to really understand your view and I'm willing to consider it honestly and to think about how it stacks up against or shapes my current view and allow it to revise my view, not out of pressure, but out of an honest consideration of what you haven't yet accounted for. You know, I I saw this happening I I will not say that I did a good job around this because I don't think I did at all. I think my husband did a much better job around this, but like just in all the political strife, it's just easy to kind of have the narratives, you know, that reinforce your own way of thinking and just be like, what is the matter with the other side? And I know both sides were saying that about the other. Mm -hmm. And that is about finding narratives that reinforce your current way of thinking and shutting off another half of the population and vilifying them. It's very dangerous, but it's also yeah. deeply unloving. It's deeply cowardly. Like, it, you know, for me, it was like, okay, there is a reason. I might try and understand it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like, I'd be a lot smarter if I'd settle down and understand what is the truth that this other group sees? What is it that they are trying to make sense of? And doing it in a way maybe differently than me, but they, there is a sense in what they're doing. And if I won't settle down enough to understand it, I'm keeping myself dumb. Yeah. And I just think that's relationships of every type. I see it in couples all the time that, you know, you're, you're, I was just working with a couple this morning. They're both entrenched in their respective self-righteous position. This is what we should do with money. No, we should do it this way. Now, they both have a good reason for their respective positions because they came out of different backgrounds, they came out of different meanings, and so they're trying to be true to themselves in a specific way. The only problem is that they've partnered with a different person, and often a very different person, mm-hmm. because that's how we tend to do it in marriage. And so the gift of marriage is if you're going to love your spouse, you seek to understand them before you're trying to be understood you let their view shape your view now it doesn't mean it gets obliterated this is you know this is about making a two person marriage not just you collapsing into one other person or dominating another person to do that well means staying open to their spouses experience point of view who they are daring to know them i think it takes tremendous courage sometimes I mean, I think sometimes I've asked my spouse a question. I'm like, don't tell me the answer. I don't want to know. <laughs> Please lie to me. Okay. Like, right. I just want the view I want. I don't yeah. want to accommodate and make room for and consider another real person and how he thinks differently. Yeah. And so that will always stretch us, but it's a gift, ultimately. When we go through it, we see we've grown up a bit, we've become wiser more mature more capable of love and less indulgent ourselves less you know ego driven wiser ourselves and that's a tremendous gift because you actually get freer it feels like freedom when you Think you're king of the hill, or you've got the right, you've got everything figured out, and all the idiots who don't get it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that can feel good in a kind of indulgent way, but you're trapped because you can't know others. You can't, you know, you're you're working from a limited map, and and angry when that map doesn't help you in your relationships and in your lived experience, rather than settling down and letting that map be shaped by reality one time you mentioned that we're all
1: worshiping a false god kind of the idea that our view and perspective and belief of god it's flawed and it's limited yes and that idea for me was massively freeing because it allowed me to be in the place where i am with my beliefs but to be open to i guess still building on those and being okay that when you know I've got this piece wrong. That's okay. And that's right. That's okay.
2: There's no other way. Exactly. It's like, and that's what Joseph Smith taught. That's what, you know, Elder Uchtdorf spoke about is that oftentimes we get so rigidly wed to our ideas and our ideals that in the name of righteousness, we become arrogant. We become unwilling to kind of allow our understanding of truth to be revised and refined and to live in the spirit of the law, the true spirit of any principle, to live it, to know it through the way we engage with one another, rather than in sort of ideological struggles with each other. Yeah. Well, Jennifer,
1: this this has been a very, I think this is a very valuable conversation yeah thank you for sharing your thoughts i know i personally have had lots of conversations with i feel like just over the last few months with parents yeah expressing concern right so many parents are what to do with these questions yeah yeah it's their 12 year olds coming to them and saying i'm bisexual and the parents are right not sure what to do next so so thank you thanks for your thoughts
2: thank you it's always a pleasure to talk to you honestly
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.